morning, everybody. It's great to be with you on this holiday weekend. I appreciate uh, Pastor Chris's comments and Bo's prayers, particularly for our country, uh, as we remember Memorial Day. And, you know, it's, I don't talk about politics a lot publicly, but it's hard to escape it these days, isn't it? When you read the news, every other story is seemingly related to uh, Hillary's email scandal or Donald Trump and Trump University and the court ruling that's coming down about those types of things. And it feels like, in a, in a lot of ways, as Bo prayed, that some of these things are just beyond us, uh, that the, the questions of our day are profound. And I was amused this last week as this was displayed in an obituary. Now, I'm not normally abused by, amused by obituaries. I hope you aren't either. That's sick. But this one was particularly interesting. Woman, I think her, she was from Virginia, after battling an illness for a long time, Mary Ann Noland was her name. And her husband decided to uh, have fun with the obituary, and he started off with something like this. Mary Ann Noland, age 69, from so-and-so Virginia. When faced with the opportunity to vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, rather chose to go be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, in a time like we have right now, uh, when so many things are uncertain, I am thankful for the things that are certain. That we have a Lord and Savior who is certain. That we have a God who guides history through all countries in his providential care. And... That allows us in some ways to not take ourselves too seriously, but to take him very, very seriously. And that's what we do as we turn our attention to his word. So I want to ask you to grab your Bible. Open with me to John chapter 12. Today we're concluding our series in the Gospel of John, verse, chapters 8 through 12. We've called the series, Jesus the Great I Am. And we come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. He had showed the masses everything that they needed to know him and to believe in him. And now, the public ministry of Jesus was coming to an end. There was only one thing left for them to witness. His death. Over the past few years, Jesus had been going from place to place, teaching and performing miracles. His claims were not minor in their impact. His actions were significant. He was doing things people had never seen before, and as a result, huge crowds were beginning to follow him. However, over this long period of time, the overwhelming response was unbelief. I mean, sure, we saw pockets of people here and there that believed in him. Sure, we even saw crowds that stood in wonder and amazement at what he did in their midst. But when you take a step back and when you look at the big picture, the vast majority of people did not believe in him. And this begs the question, why? So we come to John chapter 12, the end of the chapter, and we see in these two sections, really the impetus for Jesus' ministry 
and we see this important question that we have to ask, and that is if Jesus showed himself to be the Son of God so plainly and so powerfully, why were so many people ending up in unbelief? Let's read the text and see what it says. John 12, starting at verse 37, says this. When Jesus had said these things, and pause, the things that he said were that he was the light among them for a little while longer. When he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. So what we see in these two sections is a justification for Jesus' ministry and some explanation and the implications of unbelief. We're going to look at the second section first. Look at it with me, found in verse 44. We see here the wonderful expression of Jesus' purpose and his position. It's comforting in many ways to see his loving purpose stated so clearly in chapter 12, verse 47. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, it certainly would have been justified for Jesus to come and simply judge the world. The world was worthy of judgment. We are worthy of judgment. But rather, God, in his love for humanity, displayed this love in the coming of his Son. And not just his coming, not just that he the second person of the Trinity would become flesh among them. But his purpose to save them, to save us. And what we have seen throughout John 8 to 12 
is that there are some people who know that they need saving. But the vast majority of people don't think that they do. And here lies the problem. When you don't see God for who he clearly is, then we don't see our sin for what it clearly is, and then we don't clearly see the Savior for who he really is and our need from him. And Jesus makes this purpose very clear. His purpose is to seek and to save the lost. His purpose is to bring those who are in the darkness into the light. His purpose is to take men and women and boys and girls who would put their faith in him and restore them into a relationship with God as he forgives them of their sins. This is the logic of the passage because although we would love to stop at the reality of God not judging, there is a time when judgment will occur. The logic is this. Jesus says, I'm not here to judge right now, but God has spoken to you through my words And he will judge. So if you reject my words, you're rejecting him. And the standard by which he will judge are these very words that I have spoken. Every single one of us will be judged someday according to the standard of God's word. Jesus makes his word clear in his life and in his speech. And that is why he can say, as he says in John chapter 12, to believe in me is to believe in the one who sent me. To see me is to see the one who sent me. To reject me is to stand in judgment from the one who sent me. There's a warning at the end of this public ministry. The warning is don't let the opportunity for belief pass you by. It is right before you. Don't let it pass you by because the rejection of Jesus is the rejection of God and all of his blessings. Now, in our tolerant, multi-ethnic, relativistic culture that we have today, there is a strong desire that we have as a people of not taking a hard stand on issues of truth. Sort of permeating the skin these days. It's in the air that we breathe. When it really comes to issues of truth and falsehood, conviction or lack of conviction, we as a people are growing increasingly soft. And yet, common sense continues to tell us that if we are engaged in unbelief, in something that is actually true, the results for us can be catastrophic in nature, can't they? Long before the company Abercrombie & Fitch featured half-naked, heavily coloned models in your local shopping mall, the brand itself was well-known as a purveyor of high-end sporting goods. And some years ago, the New Yorker magazine ran a story about a Long Island resident who ordered an extremely sensitive barometer from the company, Abercrombie & Fitch. And when the instrument arrived, he stood in unbelief as he looked at the needle. The indicating needle appeared to be stuck in the position marked hurricane. And so... 
he did what every man does to a sensitive object. He shook it really hard. But the needle didn't move. And in his unbelief and disgust, he wrote a letter to the company. And on the next morning, on his way to work in New York City, he mailed that very letter. Well, that evening, he returned to Long Island to find that his barometer was missing. Not only was the barometer missing, but so was his entire house. The needle of the instrument had pointed correctly, and he didn't believe it. The month was September. The year was 1938, the day of the terrible hurricane that nearly leveled Long Island. Unbelief in something that's actually true can be catastrophic in its effect. And so it is with Jesus. Because when it comes to him, his purpose, his mission, his position, we're talking about eternal reality, folks. Belief in Jesus is belief in God. Rejection of Jesus is rejection of God and of God's blessings. And so... Why, then, did the masses not believe in him? Here we see in the first section, if you look with me at verses 37 to 43, the anatomy or the makeup of unbelief. And it's important to understand how unbelief continues to perpetuate because in that we see a couple of really important things. Number one, we see what God brought some of us out of as we came into saving faith with Jesus. Number two, if we're here today and we have objections to the gospel or to the person of Jesus, we might see some of the own obstacles in our lives. And we know how to pray for our friends and for our neighbors that we want to experience this relationship with God. Look with me at verse 37. We see the first element of unbelief is that the people just simply chose not to believe. They wouldn't. They dug their heels in. They were stubborn in their nature. You can feel the exasperation in verse 37 as he says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still didn't believe. It's like you're standing there and you're witnessing all of this occur and you just want to grab somebody by the nape of the neck and say, did you just see that? <laughs> How can you not believe? And yet they wouldn't believe. I mean, think about some of the things that they had seen. John records seven overwhelmingly powerful miracles. We see in John chapter 2 that Jesus changed water into wine. We see in John chapter 4 that the officer's son, the royal official in Capernaum, his son is healed. We see in John 5 that there's a paralyzed man in Bethsaida who is healed. We see in John 6 5,000 men plus women and children were miraculously fed by Jesus' hand. We see John 6, Jesus walking on water. We see John chapter 9, a blind man, a man who was born that way, was restored to sight. And then he started running around and he started telling everybody what happened. And they said, well, you're not the same guy. And he said, yes, I'm the same guy. And so they went to his parents and said, he's not the same guy, is he? And they said, yes, I'm the same guy. I was blind my whole life, but this guy, Jesus, now made me able to see. But if that wasn't enough, then he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
He'd been in the ground for days. His body was supposed to start smelling of the decay, the scriptures say. And yet with the word of his power, Jesus brought him back to life. Each and every miracle displaying himself to have the power and the authority that only God himself could possess. And again and again, he showed himself worthy of honor. John would later record that these things were all written down so that people might believe. But they would not believe. For some of you, you can imagine that maybe their unbelief here is a problem of short memory. I mean, maybe they caught some of this Jesus stuff going on early in his ministry, but as time went on, just like it happens for you, you experience something of God that causes you to take a big step back and say, whoa. Or you feel his presence in a unique way. Or your eyes are opened to the reality of his majesty like it had never been opened before. But as time goes on, that sense of wonder is eroded, isn't it? It's eroded by the hurt and the pain that I have in my life. It's eroded by the many different voices that are steering and feeding the direction that I'm going. It's eroded by my own sinful choices. And the memory of that most powerful experience that you had begins to fade. Maybe, maybe, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, some of these people just suffered from a short memory. But for many of them, no matter what they see, no matter what they hear, they refuse to believe. They want to see the entire picture before they take that step of trust in Jesus. But God rarely ever gives the entire picture. Martin Luther King Jr. once said in talking about faith, you don't need to see the whole staircase to go up the stairs. Just take the first step. Yet many refuse to do so. And in the case of the Jews, no matter what they saw, they refused to believe but beyond that, we see a second piece to this anatomy. We see that they would not believe, but then we also see in verse 39 that they could not believe. We see prophecy being fulfilled. And then, as he says in verse 38 and 39, the prophecy in Isaiah fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Meaning God is revealing himself again and again, and yet he's being rejected. And so verse 39 says, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. What we see here is God's sovereign action that he takes against his people. God is miraculously working in the calling of people to himself, and he's also miraculously working in the hardening of some against himself. He judges them for their sin. In Isaiah's day, both in Isaiah chapter 6, which is the quotation from Verse 40, and in Jesus' day, again and again and again, God makes himself known and they say no. 
And he makes himself known and says, no. And he makes himself known and says, I am not interested. And in judgment, we see a hardening of God against the sin of his people. We call this a judicial hardening. He's just to do so. He increases their blindness and the hardness of their hearts so they cannot believe. It sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? But you have to remember that God's sovereignty is never divorced from human responsibility. We see both very clearly in the Bible. People are responsible for their sin. We are responsible for our choices. We're responsible for our motives. And God's action in judging them, and some people today, is just. And he has his greater purposes in mind. Now, there's some encouragements in that for us. The first encouragement that we see in God's sovereign act is that he chooses to save anybody at all. I hope you're encouraged by that, because I know for me, I don't deserve it. It's only by God's grace. And I know some of you, and the ones of you that I know, I know you don't deserve it either. I am so encouraged that God chose to save any of us from our sinful ways. The, another encouragement that we see here is found that when we pray, when we have friends and family and loved ones that we want to experience God, we want to share the riches of eternity with, but we know that they're not there yet, that they're blind or that they're hardened, this informs us as to how we pray. I always pray for my friends and family members that, yes, there's external realities that will change, that will help them in their growth. But even more than that, this, what he's talking about here are internal realities that God himself is the only one that can lift the blinders off of people's eyes and soften their hearts in such a way that they can receive them or turn from their sin. Every single time a person comes to faith in Jesus, it's a miracle. A supernatural miracle that God himself has touched that person uniquely. And that informs me as to how to pray. Another encouragement that I see here, or a caution maybe, is that I'm very cautious when I look at blinding and hardening to consider my own personal state, lest I too be judged before him. So we see one piece of this anatomy of unbelief being the refusal to believe. They would not believe. We see the second one is they could not believe. We see in verses 41 to 43 that after that, God left them to their own concerns. There are a lot of people in this world, in this particular account, but a lot of people we know in life that dabble in spiritual things. They dabble in God things. They even dabble in Jesus things. They make themselves available in certain ways, but it really comes down to that moment of decision. Am I going to trust him to forgive me my sins and follow him with my life? Or am I going to just kind of do my own thing and hop in and hop out? A lot of people simply dabble on that fence. There are many different levels of belief, and we see that here in the text, that when faced with the consequences of belief— 
some of these people shrunk back. Look with me at verse 42. It says, many, even the authorities, believed him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. The consequence of belief for them was to be put out of the synagogue. And I know it's sort of hard for us to understand the weight of that. The synagogue was more than just being put out of the worship center at Old North Church, never to come back. The synagogue in Jewish life was, and the temple even more so, was the center of their interactions. Yes, it was where they worshipped. Yes, it was a place of commerce. But even more than those things, the synagogue was the place that Jewish identity was found and affirmed. To be Jewish meant that you were part of a synagogue. And in this sense, their fear in accepting Jesus or believing in him, their fear was one in which they saw God in the works of his son. They knew that he was there in a certain way. They could sense it. But at the end of the day, they wanted their security to be found in the identity of this life. They desired security in their identity right now more than they desired identity in the next life. And so verse 43 gives this damning statement. He says, this is the root cause. (laughs) They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that is part of unbelief that we can all relate to. Because it costs something to follow Jesus. And at the very least, it costs you pieces, a large piece of your identity. You trade it for a different one. And that can be hard because maybe you really like your status right now. Maybe you really like the approval that you get from other people. That's a powerful thing. I mean, affirmation from others is what drives so much of our action in this life. They're the ones that we see every day. They're the ones we interact with at work. They're the ones that we engage with and sort of feed a variety of paths for us. Fear of men and women is strong. But fear of God should be stronger. The desire for approval for men and women is strong. But the desire for approval from God should be stronger. I mean, when you really consider it, it simply does not make logical sense to desire the approval of small, finite beings who only last for 90 years on this planet if they're really healthy. And desire that approval more than desiring the approval from the majestic king of the universe who never changes and never goes away. But that is what our hardness and our blindness leads us to. John Crocker's book, Into Thin Air, relates the hazards of plagued climbers on their expedition of Mount Everest during the spring of 1996. That year, the spring expedition resulted in tragic loss of life on May 10th. 
And one of those men who died was a man named Andy Harris. Andy Harris was one of the expedition leaders. Harris had stayed at the peak of Everest for too long, and on his descent, he had a dire need for oxygen. If you don't know anything about mountain climbing, when they, once they reach a certain point on the climb, they have to put on oxygen masks because the air is so thin that to even function well, uh, they need assistance. Harris stayed at the summit for too long, and on his descent, he became in dire need of oxygen. So he radioed his predicament down to base camp, telling them of his need and telling them he'd come upon a cache of oxygen canisters that were left by other climbers. But they were all empty. But there were other climbers who had passed by the canisters on their way down, and they were at the base camp, and they knew that the canisters were not actually empty, but that they were full. And so they pleaded with him on the radio to make, new, to make use of them. But it was to no avail. Already starved for oxygen, Harris continued to argue that the canisters were empty. The problem was that the lack of what he needed, he became so disoriented in his mind that though he was surrounded by a restoring supply, he continued to complain of its absence. The very thing that he held in his hand was absent in his brain and ravaged his capacity to recognize what he was clutching in his grasp. There are a lot of people in life, the Jews we see in Jesus' day, but there are a lot of people today as well that say, I want God. I want the blessings of God to be upon me, to be upon my family. And right in front of them stands Jesus. And for the Jews, they rejected him. And for people again and again today, they say, I want God, I want the blessings of God. And right in front of us stands Jesus. And they fail to realize that belief in Jesus is belief in God. And the rejection of Jesus is the rejection of God and all of his blessings. And this is the summary or the end of his public ministry. And so there's a charge that is made here. And the charge is this. There is an opportunity for belief. Don't let it pass you by. Whenever we consider the makeup or the anatomy of unbelief, I'm conscious of the fact that there are some of us here today who have not yet believed in Jesus. Maybe we've made ourselves available. Maybe we've started opening up to that idea, but at, when it really comes down to it, when it really comes to that moment of trust for him to forgive our sins and secure our eternity and to follow him, we dabble. And we haven't taken that step. Maybe despite all he's shown us, some have still resisted that tug that he's placing on your heart. Maybe you've been wrestling with God for some time now, and you need to be reminded of the words of Jesus in John chapter 10 when he says very plainly, I am the good shepherd. Maybe you're tempted to believe that a firm choice in trusting Jesus isn't 
that important because there are, are a lot of religions out there and there's multiple ways into God's family. But Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I am the door. I mean, how can he possibly know you, you might be thinking. There are billions of people in the world. There's been billions of people throughout history. Can he possibly know you and the intricacies that make up you and the hurts and the joys and the successes and the failures and the struggles that you have? Could he possibly know you? To which Jesus responds, Before Abraham was, I am. Some say that they're just not sure if there's an afterlife. And if they're not sure, then they're not going to waste this one life that they have looking forward to another one. But Jesus assures you that there is, and that you will be judged before you get to it, and that you can live in it. And he says this when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Finally, in a confusing world, is there really a sense of urgency about these things? I mean, is it important that you make a decision for Jesus now? I mean, surely tomorrow will come, and there'll be opportunity then, won't there be? To which Jesus replies, I am the light of the world, and the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. Belief in Jesus is a belief in God. Rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God and all of his blessings. And I want to give you, if you're here today, and you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to express that trust in him. I know some of you are here today, and maybe you've made that decision some time ago, and yet you've wandered for a variety of reasons. Life is hard, there's hurts, there's pains, there's difficulties, you're mad at God for any number of reasons, and all of these things are significant. But there is a need, a desire even, a tug to rededicate your life to him. I want to ask Pastor Chris and our worship team to come back up. As a church family, we close our service today singing a song about how Jesus is better. How he is worthy of our worship and praise. And if you're here today and you can sing that, sing loudly. If you're here today and you want to put your faith in Christ, I'll ask a couple of our elders, Pastor Marty is up here, to join on the platform after this song is over. Or if you want prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. But before that, let's stand and sing together. Please stand with me. Friends, let's sing together. There is no other. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand.
Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring, we crown him Lord of all. Your kindly rule has shattered and broken the curse of sin's tyranny. My life is hidden neath heaven's shadow. Your crimson flood covers me. Your crimson flood covers me. Glory, glory. We have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring. We crown him Lord of all. Let's sing this prayer, a prayer that God would enable our faith. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. In every victory, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. Than any comfort, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And more than all riches, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. Our souls declaring, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. Our song eternal, our song eternal. Jesus is better, make my heart believe. Glory, glory, we have no other king but Jesus, Lord of all. We raise the anthem, our loudest praises ring. We crown him Lord of all. Glory, 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 glory. We have no other king but Jesus, but Jesus, Lord of all, we raise the anthem. Our loudest praises ring. We crown him, Lord.
with you on this holiday weekend. As you go this morning, a couple reminders for you. Number one, if you want prayer for anything, if you want to put your faith in Christ today, if you want to rededicate your life to Christ, or you have any needs that you want prayer for, I'd encourage you to come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Secondly, next week, June 5th, starts our summer schedule at Old North. Sunday morning worship services stay the same, but a variety of programming changes. So remind yourself of that. It's in the bulletin and on the website. And finally, as you go this morning, be encouraged by God's work in his son Jesus as we hear these good words. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless. Have a great weekend.